Welcome to the Music History Project. Today's episode is the entire interview that we conducted with Allie Willis. This is played in special tribute to her as it was recorded before her passing in December of 2019. This one's for you, Allie. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Michelle Shudler. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a collection that is over 3,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of our other interviews that aren't featured today, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. Okay, today we're going to be talking about Allie Willis. What an exciting opportunity we had to do a complete oral history interview with her, all of which you're going to be hearing in today's podcast. We decided to let this one ride because there's so much great content. I mean, heck, we're going to be talking about her writing the theme song from Friends and uh, working with Earth, Wind & Fire, of course, the Broadway musical um, The Color Purple, Along with her passion for Motown Records, uh, her uh, tie-in with Otis Redding, I mean, there's just a lot of great content in this interview, and we're very pleased to present this to you today. Uh, Where are we going to start? Let's start with introducing our new podcast member, Ashley Allison. Hey, hey. Hey. Welcome. (laughs) This is her first ever podcast because it is also my last ever, potentially, podcast. Um, She's going to be taking over for my position. Unfortunately, I have to move due to military PCS orders. Boo. Yeah. We're Can sad. we just say it? Can, Can we, we just say, cry? Say, can we just say boo? Yeah. <laughs> okay. All the time. Um, but it's going to be awesome, and I'm really excited to have her. I'm excited to, to join you guys. Yay. Be fun. Awesome. Cool. We're excited about it as well. And this is a great episode for you to join us because Allie Willis is quite a character. My goodness. The thing is about this podcast, it's only visual, it's not visual, so it's only audio. And th- so therefore you can't picture her. So I will describe that she was wearing the brightest orange wig when I first got there. It was like a hat, <laughs> but I cuddled the wig. Uh, she luckily took that off for the interview. But she's just a character. Red shoes, sparkly this, sparkly that. Uh, a wonderful, gracious person to allow us to come into her home and meet her great cats. And um, it was just a wonderful experience. You know, she's she's a very humble person. And I think that's you know, maybe playing this whole interview actually might embarrass her a little bit because we really did talk a lot about the inner workings of her career and how her songwriting got started and how her painting and all of that career got started. And so, you know, she's more private than I think this uh, this interview really kind of alludes to, but I think that's also what makes this so very special that she shared with us. So we get to share it with you. And with that, here's Allie Willis. Allie, thank you so much for having us over. My pleasure. What a pleasure it is for us. One of the things I was hoping to talk to you about is your passion for music and how you saw that develop. Did you have music in your home when you were a girl? Um, I was a fanatic uh, radio kid, and I grew up in Detroit, so there was no better radio in the world. Uh, I listened to mostly black stations. 
I, uh, you know, Motown was formed as I was coming up. So I would either get dropped off by my parents or when I got my driver's license, uh, I lived at Motown outside, never went in. I would sit on the lawn and um, you could watch the people come in and out. But most importantly, as these songs were being cut, you could hear the music coming through the walls because it's just this tiny little house. Is it what we refer to as Hitsville? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. So, and there were actually, I mean, now the Motown Museum is two of the houses. And um, finally, 60 years later, they have bought the block and the block behind and they're building a huge complex now that'll have a theater library schools recording studios and i'm very much involved in that but um i just grew up idolizing motown and i would learn uh, you know i would hear a bass line being played over and over again or um i i learned music by like hearing these separate parts so I never learned how to play. Lessons, I'm not good at, you know, if you give me an instruction that's more than two lines long, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Yet I could figure out like how to build an airplane. How, you know, I, I'm good with complex things. Simple things like terrify me. Anyway, I know that's a long way around this question, but Motown was my prime influencer. The black radio stations in Detroit, especially a DJ named Martha Jean, the queen, uh, just lived for it. And I never got into Motown um, other than once when September first came out. So this would have been like beginning in 1979. And the Detroit Free Press did a, you know, like hometown girl makes good. And they said, do you want to film at Motown? And I was like, are you kidding? I could finally get in. <laughs> so I went in once, was totally blown away. Because as I'm sure you know, nothing was touched from the day that they left. And then that was it until I did this huge Detroit project I worked on for five years. And I met uh, Paul Reiser, who was one of the, you know, funk brothers. And he said, do you want to record at Motown? It was like 50 years I have been salivating. And uh, so it was Paul Reiser and his son, Paul Reiser Jr. All of James Jamerson's family easily... Um, you know, I have two other favorite bass players, but Jamerson is right there. And, uh, and the two engineers that built the studio. Um, so we, we brought our own gear in, but to record in the snake pit, it was a dream come true. Uh, and then now, uh, not even a couple years ago, someone said, Do you know, Robin Terry. So she's Barry Gordy's niece. She's the CEO of the Motown Museum, and we met, and it was like, bang. So I literally live there now, but it took decades upon decades to finally get there. But I feel like being involved with them now, helping to raise money for this complex, it's full circle. Because there is no question I would not have become a songwriter Um if Motown, if I hadn't lived in Detroit and if Motown hadn't, you know, been there. And then I did finally get to meet uh, Barry Gordy a few times. And that was like, to me, 
better than bringing all the Beatles back, you know. Uh, and that was great. And every single time I tell him the story of sitting on the lawn, and every single time he goes, you wrote what? You wrote what? And then it always ends with me saying, thank you, and him saying to me, no, thank you. So I'm ready to die. That's good enough for me. That's awesome. Well, you know, there are some people who just don't understand what the impact of Motown and that sound was. Can I you don't understand how that sort of when it first came. Yeah, how it developed. I mean, that was a powerful tool. Uh, it was a powerful tool because it included more than just music. It was about style. It was about grace. It was a hometown label and everyone with very few exceptions, you know, came out of Detroit. They all went to high school together. Um, they all knew each other growing up. And so that hometown pride, but then it was so stylish. And first to have all the choreography, uh, in terms of like pop groups, you know, um, everyone looked sharp. Uh, the whole kind of uh, factory assembly line approach was fascinating to me that everyone worked on each other's uh, stuff. And the songs themselves, they, it, they were, it had an unbelievably uplifting feel. And, you know, the little tagline was the sound of young America. Uh, and being young and being in Detroit, it was like as if you had invented all of it yourself. I mean, all my friends, even though none of them ended up going into, you know, music or anything, uh, everyone just felt like we are the coolest because we live in Detroit. So um, I, I took it a little too far, but, <laughs> but you know, a, a just massive impact. And it was so popular um, worldwide. It was so popular. And I think, you know, it certainly changed that kind of pop soul um, approach to songwriting. So, and then you had groups like the Beatles, you know, covering Motown stuff. So it just got the ultimate stamp of approval. Well, speaking of songwriters, what are your thoughts about Holland Dozier in Holland? Oh, um, first of all, I have written with Lamont Dozier and it's very hard for me to write with him because he puts his hand on the keyboard and I'm like screaming. You know, all he has to do is boom, and I'm like, oh my God. So um, Holland, and Do Holland Dozier Holland without question because the Motown acts would put out full albums of just their songs, like the Supremes sing Holland Dozier Holland. Um, but every one of those songwriting teams, for a very different reason, Holland Dozier Holland, probably at the top, just because of the sheer number of hits they had. It was, you know, they had five, six things on the top ten at the same time. Um, Norman Whitfield killed me. That was an entirely different approach um, to songs and very uh, social conscious. Uh, Smokey Robinson, I loved. Uh, his songs really varied from each other. Ashford and Simpson. Um, uh, don't have enough to say. Plus, they were both spectacular people. 
Um, yeah, together and separate. Right? Oh my yeah. God, yeah. But but really, uh, those were probably my favorites of the Motown writers. But um, anything that came out of there, it was rare that I didn't like a song. So I would say, you know, I have a. I'm pretty clear on which songwriters in general influenced me the most. Certainly who my favorites were, um, but they're all in that, you know, every, every single one of them. So that was Allie talking a little bit about how she grew up um, and sitting outside of Motown Studios just listening to those musicians, which I absolutely love. It's a great topic, and if you want to hear more about it, we actually did a two-parts episode or two-part series, I guess I could say, about Motown. Um, and you can just find that wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Awesome stuff. Yeah, it's great. I loved her talking about the uh, Holland Dolgier in Holland because, uh, not to brag, but this oral history uh, collection includes an interview with all three of those guys. So that was a really kind of an extra treat to hear her perspective on their magic as far as songwriting goes. Because, you know, that's one of the cool things about listening to songwriters talk, in my opinion, is you get to hear in little insights that make you understand how they write their own songs and really maybe where inspiration came from. And in, in her case, you know, listen to September by earth, wind and fire. And to me, I hear Motown, right. you know, you can totally hear that connection for sure. And so that's kind of a neat little thing. Um, uh, up next in the uh, uh, interview with Allie, she talks about um, kind of a chilling story about uh, Otis Redding's passing. So, um, Let's get back into the interview here with uh, Allie Willis. So how do you describe a songwriter who has influenced you? I mean, in what way? Well, seeing as I have never learned how to play, um, I just think I got everything I know from songwriters who thrilled me. I mean, they were all the Motown people. Uh, Burt Bacharach, Hal David, the Bee Gees. Carol King, uh, James Taylor, um, I don't know why I'm blanking, Otis Redding, Otis Redding, It Kills Me wasn't from Detroit, because I always <laughs> like to say he's my favorite of all time, but I feel like I am defying my Motown roots, you know, but Otis Redding, unbelievable, from the songs, to the records, to the voice, to the style, all of it. Plus, I saw his plane crash. Yeah, I have a lot of things in my life like that. Like, how did I end up uh, here? But I was in my sorority house. Yes, I was a sorority girl. And uh, just, I was sitting at the window and, you know, the plane crashed into a lake. Uh, and you really, you couldn't see anything. This, there, it was such, um, a blizzard, uh, like beyond anything I had seen where I was on the second floor and the snow was solid against the window. And I heard this massive boom and the snow all shifted. Like it was almost like you lost a frame in time. And um, I ran out into the hall and I said to, you know, I just yelled, like, what was that? And no one but me had heard anything. So, but I was really freaked out by it because it sounded like whatever it was, it was either a bomb or something serious had happened. But I was going to an Otis Redding concert that night. And um, 
Uh, we had yet to leave really early because it was first come, first serve. It was 10 below zero. And uh, usually this, it was called the factory. It opened up on time. So we got there a half hour early. We're there at like 6.30. And, uh, but it got to be 7.30, 8 o'clock. And I mean freezing. And all of a sudden a, a window on the second floor opened and someone leaned out with like a bullhorn and I turned to my date and I said it was a plane crash and it was Otis Redding and he all he said was uh, ladies and gentlemen there was a plane crash in Lake Mendota today it's believed that Otis Redding and the Barquets were on it um, so this crowd if you were white and you were into Otis Redding you were seriously into Otis Redding. It, it was until Dock at the Bay, which they released like the next day, pretty much. Um, a lot of people didn't know him. You had to be into him to know him. So I spent the next three days literally sitting on the Dock of the Bay and watching um, them bring everyone up. I saw Carla Thomas walking out on the ice to identify him. Uh, it was it was incredibly heavy. <clears throat> Can I tell you one more piece of this story? So I always felt this incredible attachment to him. A, because I loved him as an artist and a songwriter. But B, because I had seen literally after the last moments, you know. Um, so this was maybe six years ago now, six, seven years ago. These two kids, uh, one was 16, one was 22, um, contacted me on Facebook. And they said, we love you, we want to write with you. And they were two, you know, rappers. And I thought, this is great, but I'm not going to Florida for this. If you ever come to LA, let me know. And yeah, we'll write together. And they really persisted. They persisted for two years minimum. Finally, I get a thing. Okay, we're coming to LA. So we set up a few days to write. I love them. Just fall in love with them immediately. They wrote a whole rap about me. Uh, any, they did anything they could to entice me. <laughs> so they're here for a couple days. We're just furiously writing. And, um, we took a break and just sat in the living room. And a couple times they had said, you know, my uncle was in music and, you know, but it just kind of flew past. So I finally said to them, who's your uncle? And the older one looked at me pretty strangely and he said, well, you know my last name. And I said, no, I don't know your last name. I know your rap names. That's all I know you by. And he threw his checkbook over to me and it was Chris Redding. And it was Otis's nephews. So, and then I told them the story about seeing the plane crash. And the fact that there was this connection where usually I am not quick to write with people that approach me on social media uh, because then I would, it, it would be crazy. I, and I don't know why I responded to these two, but I did. So we felt like we were, you know, destined to come together. So that was, that was pretty heavy. I'll say yeah. That. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. So I, I honor Otis. I include him as a Motown artist. <laughs> yeah.
That's amazing. That is truly. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about how your writing started. Um, I uh, majored in advertising. I majored in um, journalism with a minor in advertising at University of Wisconsin, which was the second best journalism school in the country. Columbia was first, Wisconsin second. And I also, I, I knew that's what I want. I didn't know I wanted to do advertising. I knew I wanted to do journalism of some sort. Um, and also that year, more importantly to me, uh, Wisconsin had been chosen as the number one party campus by, uh, Playboy magazine. So I thought second best journalism school, first good party school. This is it. So, um, I went there, uh, you know, as most students do, you just think you're brilliant at these things. So my senior year, you had to actually write a lot of ads and advertising had kind of taken over pop culture because it never, it was always very straight and conservative. And all of a sudden it was like Braniff planes with smiles on them and stomachs sitting on chairs talking back to you. <laughs> and I just thought this is the coolest. So um, the last year I had written, you know, you actually write ads. Um, and uh, someone told me that they had advertising departments at record companies, which I never realized. So I thought, okay, I got to go to New York because that's where the most labels were at that time. And um, uh, I got a job. Originally, I was supposed to be Florence Greenberg. You know, she was founded Scepter, Dionne Warwick, all this stuff. I was supposed to be her uh, assistant, which to me was thrilling because it was all this music that I loved. And when I went back in, like for my s not even second interview to like find out when do I start all of this, um, she told me, which has happened to me many times before, I'm quitting. I, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm too old. There's too much pressure. So I ha I went from, oh my God, I got the greatest job in the world to nothing. Um, and then a, a friend from Detroit said that his uncle worked at Columbia Records and he'd set up an interview for me there. Um, and so I met with the uncle who was really high up, just like a couple steps under Clive Davis, who was my, ended up being my very first boss. That's still the relationship I have with him. The 21 year old Alley, president of Columbia Records, Clive. He's like a father to me. And, um, uh, so this guy, Dick Asher, uh, introduced me to the head of advertising and as luck would have it, the, uh, secretary in the advertising department told the boss that day she was going to uh, Jamaica for the summer and they needed someone to fill in. So they sent me upstairs. You had to take a typing test. I was on my 11th fail when the boss of the advertising just called upstairs and said, we don't care, just send her down. So I, uh, you know, I did that, you know, <laughs> keeping up with everything. And within a month, they made me a junior copywriter, 
which was the most glamorous job that anyone straight out of college could have at the biggest record company there was. Mm -hmm. So I was, the accounts I was given were all the minority acts, which were all the girls and all the blacks. That was all I cared about, you know, anyway. Um, first person I met was Janis Joplin. Five days before she died, I just you know, slid in, eventually moved into her apartment, but that was a couple of years later. And um, so uh, Laura Nero was the first person I was given. I was a Laura Nero fanatic. Uh, her manager, it, her, it was his first client, was David Geffen. So that was my first little team, was uh, Laura Nero, David Geffen, um, and uh, the photographer who shot all her stuff, Stephen Paley, who I'm still in contact with. And, um, but, you know, Barbara Streisand, Black Axe, you know, Sly and the Family Stone. Every now and then a white one would slip in, like Simon and Garfunkel, something like that. But um, the day that I, well, I should say, um, I bought a piano. This was two and a half years after I started at the label. I bought a piano and I bought a reel to reel, see, reel, no, reel to reel. <laughs> uh, no, actually it's yeah. this. That, that's the kind of stuff that my brain just goes into scramble mode. Um, bought a reel to reel tape recorder and this was 1972 and one of the biggest songs of the year was a ballad by Gilbert O'Sullivan called um, Alone Again Naturally. I just thought it was an unbelievable song. And I was on a bus coming down uh, Columbus Avenue and I just started writing my own lyric to it. And I had a complete lyric by the time I was home. And I called up the one friend I had from college who lived in New York, played piano and had an afro white guy. Uh, and I said to him, do you want to write a song? And he said, well, I never have. I said, you know, me neither. But, you know, I wrote this lyric and come over and let's, you know, write the music together. So he brought over the sheet music to Never Can Say Goodbye, which was out by Barry White at that time. Barry White? No, Isaac Hayes. Isaac Hayes. And uh, I should never confuse those two. <laughs> also two I idolized. And um, we took the sheet music and we started at the back, the last chord, and he just played the chords backwards. I can sing a melody to anything. If you were to clunk over now, I would write to the clunk of the body. I mean, I, anything, any sound I can write to. So, um, you know, just sang this melody, he's playing the stuff, and I had my first song. Then I wrote uh, Two Others Alone. Again, not being able to play, but I could figure out a chord and I could just clump and then I could clump, you know. And um, so I had three songs. I took them to my boss at the record company. He loved them. He said, let's take them to Ron Alexenberg. He was president of Epic at the time. And so anything that Ron signed, he had to get okayed by... Clive. And we didn't tell them who it was because it was a conflict of interest. And I needed to keep the, you know, the job. So Alexenberg loved them, sent them to Clive, loved it, got a deal. Because in those days, if you were decent and you were a singer-songwriter, you were getting a deal. 
Uh, and so my very first 10 songs uh, became my first and only album, Child Star. The producer was Jerry Ragavoy, incredible songwriter, Time is on My Side, uh, Peace of My Heart. I mean, really great stuff. And um, we co-wrote one song for the album. Otherwise, it was all my stuff. Uh, took a couple years between recording and coming out. That came out in 1974. And um, I immediately uh, went on tour, had never been on stage before. I played a tree with no lines in second grade and was a mess on stage. The teacher, my costume was like a paper bag you know, grocery bag with slits in it and then painted green. So I looked like I had some leaves. And the teacher from the side of the stage kept going, Willis, you know, stop shaking. I was so nervous. And so the bag was like, you know, <laughs> crinkling and making all this noise. So for my first appearance, Epic Records puts me in front of 10,000 people Opening for a folk singer, David Bromberg, who was a big folk singer at that time, and I had an all-black band dressed as sequined vegetables. And I would spend all my time on the costumes, the props. It had more props, and no one was doing that in, in, in you know these days. I'm building furniture, I'm doing all this stuff, terrified to rehearse. Um, and... Uh, you know, but it was time, so I, I went out on stage. It was horrible. So I had four fairly horrible, to me, uh, experiences on stage. And we were at Ohio State. I got booked there because my agent also had Joni Mitchell. And they said, if you want Joni Mitchell, you take Allie Willis. So I think I'm opening for Joni Mitchell. We walk in, everyone dressed as the sequined vegetables, except me, and I used to collect uh, tiny little miniature, like charms, basically, head to toe, covered with charms. And they walk us into a lunchroom where they have built like a little cardboard, basically, stage. There's a psychology class at the back of the um, room, and in between every song, the professor is yelling, can you keep that racket down? And there were three people eating hot dogs in front of the stage. And my the band, all of whom went on to become someone, um, they said, no, no, you every situation, you have to be professional. You can't get mad that they booked you into a lunchroom with a class going on. And I, I was so scared to perform anyway. I was losing my voice all the time. So we were on the sixth song, and it was the instrumental. And I just turned around and I went, Bye. And I jumped off the stage. I wish I could say I walked down the aisle and left, <laughs> but I just had to squeeze in front of the hot dog eaters and split. And I just thought, that's it. I cannot uh, do this. And I'm, I'm not going to perform 
anymore. And I knew that was going to be death because, you know, my album came out on two other albums I had to help promote on the same, uh, in the same week as Bruce Springsteen and Billy Joel's first album. So it's like I'm attending these meetings as a copywriter. I know I'm dead. No one's going to promote me. But I just thought, I can't like live with this trauma. But I thought, I'll take a year. I'll like go to small venues. I'll learn how to perform. Um, that took 37 years to do that. Uh, now it's my favorite thing to do. But I, I was terrified for decades. Um, but one incredibly significant thing happened from that album. Um, my best friend, who was one of the Harlettes, which was Bette Midler's group, that's how I ate. We would go backstage every night when she was on Broadway and eat all the, <laughs> the food in her green room. Um, uh, she, uh, so I was dropped. I was dropped about three months after that. And so my best friend, she calls me up and she says, you shouldn't be alone today even though I knew it was a blessing in disguise. I mean, it felt hideous, but I knew it was best. I couldn't go on doing this. And um, uh, she said, I'm, you know, I've got a background session tonight, come to the session. And I kept saying no, because the last place you wanna be when you are dropped is at someone else's recording session. But she was adamant. Um, and she told me the name of the singer. I'd kind of heard of her, but didn't like really know who she was. And uh, this was another one of those fate things where we open the door to the studio. The singer is maybe as far away from me as you are, takes one look at me, turns around, bows at my feet, literally is going like this, and says, what are you doing here? Go home and write me a song. And it was Bonnie Raitt. So I called my friend who had been yapping about Bonnie Raitt and uh, David Lasley, also incredible songwriter, but at that time, everyone's, you know, starving to death. And uh, he came over at midnight. We wrote three songs and we're at the studio by noon the next day. Uh, she chose one of them. She did it. We went on the road as the background singers. And that's when I went, being in the back is fine. Uh, you know, all the pressure is off. You have all the good time, but you don't, the responsibility is not on you. Now, I feel completely different now, but that's after like four or five decades, you know. So uh, that's how I got my first cut. Because my friend said to me, what uh, about this whole process? What's the part of it you enjoy? And I said, the songwriting, because it was really interesting. I loved uh, collaborations, even though I was mostly writing by myself at the time. I loved the friends, you know, that I was meeting through it. So that's why she took me to the session. I mean, she literally said, Maybe, well, I didn't even pay attention to the name, you know. Uh, you know, maybe she'll want to do one of your songs. I mean, it was so naive to think that way, but it worked. So then I thought they would roll in, you know, it's just, it's going to keep coming. And, you know, one or two a year, sometimes significant artists, but never the single. 
Okay, so you are listening to the Music History Project, and this is Allie Willis talking about getting into songwriting, Motown, and soon she's going to be talking about moving to LA. And I just wanted to do a quick plug to the NAM website, where if you'd like to see the video that goes along with this interview, you can see that in its entirety. Head over to namnamm.org slash library, and we have our full collection there. Just search for Allie Willis, and it'll pop up. So let's get back into the full interview with Allie Willis. And then um, 1977, that whole year I moved to LA in 76. 76 and 77, I was just going around to every publisher there was, getting turned down by everyone. All said the same thing. Well, your style's really unique and these songs are really good, but it's not what we're looking for. So where I really wanted to be was at A&M, Irving Elmo, because everyone said that's the hottest place now. So of course I didn't go there. I mean, I'm being turned down by all these little publishers. Why would I humiliate myself? Uh, by going to the biggest. And then um, everyone else was eliminated. So I thought, I'm not going to stop being a songwriter, but I'm not going to get any covers unless I have a publisher, because that's I'm not good at that. I've never to this day ever given anyone a song and said, this would be great for you to sing. I'm way more interested in, I don't want any pressure on the relationship. Will you make a good party guest or not? So, um, but I, I, fi- I had no alternative at this point. So I just thought, final humiliation, let's just go in and get this done. So I meet with the president, who was Chuck Kay at the time. And all I had was a reel-to-reel. I couldn't afford to make any kind of smaller format. And took the reel-to-reel in in this battered box that you know, should have had a hundred no's, you know, written on it. So he puts on the first song, Child Star, which was the title song of the album. And in the middle of the song, he turns around and he goes, click, and he shuts it off. So I'm already up. I have been through this now a hundred times. And I'm literally like putting my stuff in my little bag and I'm standing up and he literally reaches across the table with his hand out and said, congratulations, you have a deal. And that was after hearing a half a song. So that was mind blowing to me. And within the first eight weeks, I got 11 covers. And um, signed on my birthday in nineteen, on my thirtieth uh, birthday, and uh, then started getting all these other other covers. Then the same friend who took me to Bonnie Raitt, her name was Sharon Red. She actually became a big disco singer. Um, she, the Harlots, got a deal for their own record. This was in nineteen seventy. Well, they got it in 76, but this would have been 78. And um, they took a few of my songs to their producer who was in San Francisco because they wanted to do it on their album. And he, at the same time, was producing Patti LaBelle. She heard the songs, 
she paid for me to come up to San Francisco and put them down on, uh, make demos, because they didn't have enough money for demos. So they're, you know, bringing songs with me, like, you know, plunking out notes and stuff. Yeah. So that was my first kind of legitimate uh, break. Uh, and she started, from then on, she would regularly do at least two songs of mine on every album. But she said to me while we were up, there. I was only up for a few days. Um, my friend is recording in Studio B. He needs lyrics. Go in and see him. And I didn't do it because it's like, I have finally hit the big kahuna. I'm not going off with the friend, you know. And also, I didn't like just writing lyrics. Um, I felt very distant from the song when I did it. Um, so I avoided Studio B for the first two days. The third day, I'm walking down the hall, and the door to Studio B opens, and this guy comes out, and I go, oh, God, this is like the guy. So I duck into the bathroom. I am on the toilet. The bathroom door opens, and I hear clump, 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 and then I see these two male feet slide under the door. So this person is this far away from me on the toilet, and I just hear this, you know, kind of deep voice, and he says, you know, Patty says you're a great writer. Come into Studio B. So it's like, I gotta go. <laughs> I walk in. I've never seen that many keyboards in my life. Um... But I still, I didn't know who it was. It's just like my attitude is, let me get this over as fast as I can get it over. So we immediately, we sit down across from each other and we had written, we were on the middle of the second song, putting lyrics to it. And he got a phone call. And it was the first time I had a chance to just look at him. And I look at him and I look at the keyboards and I go, holy shit, it's Herbie Hancock. And so I ended up writing like three or four songs on that album. Patty then did a bunch of stuff. So that was the beginning of 1978. Um, and those two credits, along with a friend of mine starting to date someone in Earth, Wind and Fire, that led to uh, Verdine White hearing about me. Um, uh, she told Verdine you should really like write with her. She's really good. Um, and so I started with him. Earth, Wind and Fire was by far my favorite group at the time. Maurice White, to me, the most underrated great singer in the, in the world. Uh, but I, I didn't even think about that. It was just like, okay, this is one more, you know, person. He's re he had two groups that he was uh, recording. We wrote for them. He said to me a couple times, I'm going to tell my brother Maurice about you. I thought that will never happen. It's too big, you know, to, I mean, Patty and Herbie, great. But Earth, Wind and Fire was like at the top of the charts then. Uh, and then out of the blue, I get a phone call. Only conversation was, is this Allie Willis? Yes, this is Maurice White. Did not ask me if I wanted to write a song. His next line was, do you want to write the whole next Earth, Wind & Fire album with me? And I just, I thought either someone's playing a joke or, I mean, I knew Verdine, he was a man of his word, but it was just, it was too big. Uh, so I went to the studio the next day, which was right around the block from where, you know, my apartment was. 
And uh, as I walked in, they were working on the intro to September. And I just thought, this is the happiest thing I have ever heard. Please let this be what he wants me to work on. And within five minutes, we had started. So we wrote September to be the first, uh, the only new single on uh, Earth, Wind & Fire's Greatest Hits, number one, um, volume one, which that was mind-blowing. Here I am with all these like incredible songs. Uh, and at the same time, we were writing the I Am album. So, uh, and then from that moment on, I had already gotten the 11 covers in the eight weeks. And then you throw Earth, Wind & Fire into the mix, and then it just exploded. And almost immediately I knew, this is not for me. It was, everyone, first of all, a lot of them only wanted lyrics. That, I knew I had to do it because it would mean I would get incredible credits. I would have done, I would have washed floors to be with Earth, Wind & Fire. Um, but the amount of people that started asking me, and it was in very early days of just sending people tracks, and because I also wrote music, in nine-tenths of the cases, I thought, had I been involved on the music, this would have changed at bar five. So I ended up getting over a hundred songs cut a year for the next few years, but all the while knowing I, I can't do this. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I can't uh, do it. And because I went from thinking I wrote very special songs to thinking I was just turning them out like hamburgers. But after being ignored for so long, it's very hard when the biggest singers in the world want to, you know, and producers in the world want to work with you. So um, it went on at that pace uh, until 1981. And then a group I had written for uh, before, Manhattan Transfer, and I also, uh, when I had to quit my job finally at the record company, I became a hat check girl at, uh, at a, a, the, one of the biggest comedy clubs in New York, Catch a Rising Star. And during the day, I was hanging posters for the biggest cabaret, which was called Reno Sweeney's. So Manhattan Transfer, I had actually been friends with because I had hung their posters up when they were performing at this club, you know, Reno Sweeney. So I knew them from uh, New York. Um, so it was my uh, birthday weekend. And party throwing always have taken very seriously because it's the only thing I can do where everything I do, I can do in one space. It's not just a song here or, uh, you know, a set here, a script here. It's like it's all together. So uh, Tim Hauser, lead of the group, uh, called me up. And I had previously done with David Lasley, who I did the Bonnie Raitt stuff with, um, we had taken the song Pick Up the Pieces by, not Pick Up the Pieces, um, Shaker Song by Spyro Gyra, and had put lyrics to it. And they wanted a lyric. The lyric had to change constantly through the song. So it's not like you're writing a couple verses, a chorus, and then you're just repeating. And it's a long song. And how do you make sense of the title Shaker Song? So David and I had done what they thought was the impossible. And it became not a huge hit for them, but a hit for them. Like if you're a transfer fan, you know that song. 
And uh, so on my birthday weekend, I'm stirring this big pot of chili, getting ready for this party. And uh, Tim calls up and said, we want you to do the same thing that you did with Shaker Song to pick up the pieces by average white band. And I immediately thought, oh God, okay, so it's just a lyric, but it's an entire song's worth, the constantly changing lyric, and it's my birthday. I do not want to be thinking about this. And I was so sick of songwriting, having written so many songs, and rarely thinking any of them were great, great. I mean, I didn't find many Septembers in the bunch. So um, I did it. I had a horrible time at the party because I kept wanting everyone to leave because I had a deadline of that Monday. And I handed it in and he calls me up right away and he said, oh, we just wanted the chorus. And I was so sick of people not, A, not telling me, even though I, I love Manhattan Transfer, so none of this actually transferred to any of them. But it's like songwriters, because you don't have to pay to have them write a song for you, they tend, I don't mean transfer now, I mean in general, artists and producers would ask you to write a song, you would ask how many other people are doing this, they would say, just you, or just you and a few others. And then you would find out that there were 100 people competing for the same spot. No one's paying you. A lot of albums that I ended up on, I would have written seven or eight songs for, and one, maybe two, might get on. And I felt that songwriters were so screwed over, constantly, uh, not to mention that someone can take a song, hold it for a few years, and then end up not doing it. So you haven't gotten paid. The song is now old to you. It has so much like bad juju attached to it. And just these songs, many of which were, were good, were just tossed away. So that's when I decided I cannot... Uh, keep doing this, and I started trying to unionize songwriters. But we all had this clause in our publishing deals that said we were work for hire, even though we weren't, and we weren't getting any of the uh, benefits. You had no health insurance yet, you know, none of this. Um, so it was impossible to do at that time, even though we had a few meetings and all the big songwriters were there. But ultimately, no one wanted to risk anything. But that at least gave me, I made an official stand, and I knew I just couldn't go back to, um, couldn't continue to write that many songs, especially if I wasn't doing the, the, the music as well. So that gave me the strength to pull back. Um, I was miserable, well, I was miserable almost from the front, because I knew... I am a, a very visual person. I live a very visual life. I dress distinctively. And that's hard when you are the person in the back and all they want is a tiny piece of what you do. Okay, as we uh, continue with uh, Allie Willis's NAM oral history interview, I wanted to paint a picture of her home. 
uh, in Hollywood, very close to uh, a couple of the studios. In fact, way back in the 30s, that particular home was used as sort of a party house. And it's very Art Deco. And she's got like bowling balls in the yard as decorations and pink everywhere. And it's amazing place. And all throughout in every single room, are paintings that she has done. And I had not really um, paid too much attention to her, her painting career. I'd seen some things that she had done, but the extent of her talent is really amazing. It's not just painting. I mean, it's a multimedia type of thing. And in every room is just the most incredible display of how her style changed over the years and how versatile she is as, a, as an artist. And so that was really kind of a neat thing. So um, even though this is part of her uh, interview as a songwriter, I wanted to make sure that we kept in the part of the interview that talks about that. So up next, uh, Ali will be talking about switching uh, to, uh, to painting. So I knew I had to figure out something else to do, but I had no idea what it was. And I was taking all my strength just to say no when someone would trend me, send me, when someone would send me a very average track that I knew was never going to go anywhere. It was lucky if it made it onto an album. Um, so there were a couple of years in there where I, I was doing more time questioning everything than actually writing and questioning. And then 1983, very stormy night, I'm painting my bathroom pink. And I had this paper lying on the ground and um, the a big splat dropped on the paper and I looked down and I went, Oh, that kind of looks like a face. And I had gone to the thrift shop. I went to thrift shops every day and I had bought a big box of TV knobs, vintage TV knobs and a huge stack like this of uh, vintage life magazines and ebony magazines. And I grabbed some of the TV knobs and I, I, well, first I took the toilet brush because even then I thought better that my DNA be in my first piece. So I take the toilet brush and I kind of swirl the blotch out so it's kind of face shaped. I took two TV knobs. Those were going to be the eyes. Um, I made a mistake and then I realized, oh God, this is great. You just paint over the mistake. Or, you know, I started ripping stuff out of the magazines and just pasting it over the mistake. And by the morning, I had these three heads and I had my first piece. It was big. It was about eight feet long. So I uh, put it up in the living room. I just taped it over what was there. And I was writing with Jane Weedlin at the time, one of the Go-Go's. And we had very similar tastes. And she walked in and the first thing she looked at, she said, oh my God, where did you get that? I'll buy it off you. And I said, I like painted it. I can't sell it because it's the first piece. So she commissioned me to do her portrait and the portrait of her dog and her miniature horse. And that became my first thing. And then I realized, because this was the 80s, people were buying art like crazy. I realized I have a built-in audience here. It's these music people. We all have similar tastes. And uh, one by one, they started buying it. And I had my first opening was in a group show. 
and very kind of sedate as art openings were and they had the wine and the cheese and the grapes and I'm a party thrower and I just walked outside it was a really fancy uh, gallery in Santa Monica and I walked outside and I looked in and I said I love painting but something is missing here I'm used to music it is like full blast all the time and I'm a party thrower and that's when I realized I have to make the music and the art work together and I'm going to start motorizing my pieces I'm going to take my songs I'm going to do my interpretation of what they meant because you would see videos other people would do of these songs that go, what do they think these songs are about, you know? <laughs> so uh, very first one I did was Neutron Dance, um, huge motorized piece, of, you know, kind of people dancing on Earth, but then the bomb goes off and they get shot up into space and they're all like spinning around up there and uh, I had a party for it and that's when I realized oh the party throwing can't be separate either it's got to be the music the art the lifestyle the party throwing and I'd moved uh, I had bought this house by that time and this house uh, was built as the party house for MGM in 1937 so I live in a party house it's the best place to display my work the studio is right here so that's when it became uh, that would have happened that realization was by the end of 83 uh, that now I have to just get a concept and all these areas will go together and play off each other and that was the beginning of me being a true multimedia artist. Um, and then things would happen to me like I'd be, uh, I was at a dinner party. The guy I was sitting next to knew about my house. He asked me if I ever art directed a video before. I said, no. He said, if you, we can use your house uh, and everything in it. Uh, I'll give you art director credit and so two days later Debbie Harry was sitting in my living room and I realized oh if I do these video things this is a way for me to meet people that I would love to work with uh, you know so then set design became part of it then furniture design became part of it because I needed furniture for the sets and then in 1991 was the huge turning point when uh, one of my friends went um the internet it's all about the internet and they showed me all i saw was message boards this was before there were any graphics early 91 and i saw a message board i saw a bunch of message boards and they were mostly either about work or people like communicating but just being used for conversations or work or something like that. And I thought, well, this could be funny. This is a great comedian's, you know, medium. And at that time, um, no, that was actually a couple of years later. Anyway, I decided, screw all this other stuff. I believe that because people are linked in from all over the world, this would make the ultimate party. 
uh, because I needed a way to get my parties out of my backyard. I was spending all my time, all my money on the parties, which by this point were getting press, they were getting reviewed, and I started feeling the same pressure with the parties that I did with the music. And the same thing happened to the art, because I went from painting one painting at night to, okay, 27 paintings this week. You know, everything was, uh, you know, I had my own way of doing it, I did not know till after I sold a thousand paintings that you mix colors together to get other colors. I mean, I'm pathetically untrained in everything I do. Once I learned that, then the fun kind of went out of it because, you know, but that's why my work was always so bright because it would come straight out of a tube, you know. <laughs> so um, 91, though, I decided, okay, I'm stopping all this other stuff. Um, I mean, I'll do it because I need to maintain, but my interest is in interactivity, digital, redefining uh, what is music, what is a song, once people can actually be linked into it as you're creating it. So it's not a finished piece because everyone can change it and it can go on forever. So I became obsessed with mass collaboration and uh, pretty much other than fulfilling my publishing deal, which went on till 94, um, at that point I was at Warner Chapel, I'm dedicating myself to figuring out what the internet is all about. Came up with the very first concept for a social network in 1993, Mark Cuban became my uh, CEO. We could not get arrested. We spent almost two years going around to every record company, a television network, movie company, saying it's not going to exist as you know it now. Um, people thought we were crazy. We were thrown out of or hurried out of so many offices. It was nuts. And uh, they couldn't understand how physical product wouldn't be important, how collaborations could happen over this thing that they didn't understand called the Internet. Most importantly, why I would be giving up an illustrious career to go after this dorky fad. Everyone referred to it as like a fad or a trend. Um, so, uh, you know, went through the 90s, uh, pretty much, you know, trying to do this, was funded by Intel at one point, but I realized they just basically needed me in there to uh, do demos for all these technologies that they had invested in, that I could art direct them, I could add music. That was not my interest at all. My interest was a social network. It was more than a social network. It was a... Um, a, uh, it was a cul-de-sac online occupied by uh, fictional characters who would serve as your guides into cyberspace. I wanted to make it look and feel as untechnical as possible because I knew a lot of what kept people away from cyberspace was what it looked like, how long it took to log on, all that stuff. And so they lived in middle-class uh, fantasy homes on one side of the street. And of course, I'm building models for everything. And the stores they owned and operated on the other side of the street. Because at that point, there were three or four things you could actually buy online. So one of them became a car salesman because people were starting to do that.
One of them became a party thrower. Well, you know, they each kind of had a different thing and it was meant to be a, like a kind of a beta site for uh, testing out emerging technologies. And in the meantime, it kind of looked and felt uh, very kitschy, not this cold, you know, technical uh, look. And we were experimenting with mass collaboration of music, mass collaboration of art, um, and doing everything that you could do in cyberspace, but in one location. Previous to that, if you sent an email, take you five minutes to log on, you send your email, you want to play a game, you have to log off, another five minutes to get on that site. You know, if you wanted to, you know, eventually Amazon buy a book, you had to log off and take 10 minutes to log on there. So this was all going to be in the same spot. But that Intel thing killed my spirit because it went from, we think we're building this, but all you're doing is decorating other people's, you know, demos. But I stayed on with that till 1999. Um, I, and I just felt there was so much uh, crazy money being spent not going to the right people, the people that were really interested in it. It's like Silicon Valley would give Steven Spielberg a million dollars to do something. Well, he's not interested in that stuff, but that's the right hookup for them. The Hollywood people and companies are making these stupid deals with if these companies that if you understood technology, you would realize would never do what they said they were doing. And in fact, when the uh, Time Warner AOL merger came out, it was the first time ever the New York Times had given the entire front page to one story. And it was actually a page and a half. And all the biggies at the time, uh, Barry Diller, John Malone, Rupert Murdoch, uh, talking about this is the greatest thing, you know, that ever happened. And toward the end of the article, but interactive multimedia artist Allie Willis says, this is the worst thing that could ever happen. It's the blind leading the blind. And if these two companies merge, there won't be any company in a couple of years. And it took less than a year for, you know, time order to go. This is not, you know, working because AOL was not what these people who did not understand technology it wasn't the full internet, you know, it, it already was a way that if you were tech savvy, you weren't going through AOL anyway, which I hate saying because I was great friends with Steve Case, the founder, who spent many an afternoon, you know, in this living room, you know, batting around ideas. Um, but, you know, the whole thing just made me sick. It just felt like uh, money hungry people all over the place not necessarily contributing to the good of mankind. So when that tech bubble burst in 99, I had already decided I need to kind of, I want to write, I just want to write a song, you know, but it was not surprising at all. So once again, that was Ellie Willis talking about her painting career. Up next, she'll t be talking a little bit about her contributions to the Broadway musical, The Color Purple. So 99, I thought I'm coming back hard into all this stuff I said I would never do again. You know, linear songwriting, non-interactive art, um, because I craved being around artists. I'd spent a decade 
around engineers, tech engineers, who viewed themselves as artists and directors. And it's very different making a little coffee bean roll across a page than a coffee bean with emotion becoming a character. And no one seemed to understand that. So I, at that point, I actually created an alter ego for myself named Bubbles the Artist. I thought least appropriate name for an artist ever. And I started by making 100 paintings uh, in a month, <laughs> throwing a party, announcing that this was my... I was very into kitsch artists. I, I rarely go to concerts, but if you tell me someone is singing a song of mine poorly in a bar in Pacoima, I am in my car, you know? <laughs> so I thought I've always presented these kind of artists, the greatest being the Del Rubio triplets. Do you know the of Del Rubios? Okay, so I am credited, go to Wikipedia, I'm credited with the discovery and getting them to sing, you know, pop songs. And uh, so I, I just sent an email out that said, I've made my greatest uh, musical and artistic find since the Del Rubio triplets, Bubbles the Artist, you know, come over for an auction. And I ended up selling 92 of the 100 paintings, um, but for very cheap, not enough where I wasn't going to lose money doing this. But it was so great to me that she viewed herself as an artist of the people. And then, you know, Bubbles started um, writing songs like horrible songs that I had so much fun with. And it kind of became like a cult uh, thing uh, where Bubbles owners all knew each other and Bubbles had a very specific way of speaking. And I started getting incredible quotes from people. The largest buyer of Bubbles uh, is Lily Tomlin to this day. She has close to 30 pieces. And she went on David Letterman um, and, you know, he said, like, what are your favorite, like, Christmas gifts that you got? You know, it was all about Bubbles the artist. Someplace else she called Bubbles uh, the greatest living artist of the uh, 20th century. RuPaul was second. He just was in Architectural Digest about six months ago. Um, I wish he had said Bubbles, but he said me. But he said Allie Willis was like his favorite painter. Like, you know her as a songwriter, but the real talent. And Bubbles stuff is just horrible. You know, one arm is here, one's there, one eye is there, one's there. You know, it's just, it's wrong. But it has heart. And I always had a fascination. I had a fascination with people way at the top and a fascination with people way at the bottom. Middle, no interest to me. But, you know, up there where the genius is, down here where the heart is. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, so I got to be one of those artists, and Bubbles sustained me through the writing of The Color Purple. I, that's how I, like, basically made a living, because the only music I was writing for close to five years with uh, Brenda Russell, Stephen Bray, was the color purple. Mm. Uh, and then the day we opened on Broadway, I said to Bubbles, you're dead. <laughs> I can't do this anymore. And I am only now, only right now, about to bring Bubbles back from the dead. So she's not dead. Uh, no, but she was dead from uh, 2000, end of 2005, 
to end of 2018. So, but it's time to bring her back. And for some reason, there's new interest and people are asking for commissions. So it's like, why not? You know, and then Color Purple took up five years of my life. Um, very hard because of all the compromises you have to do. But one of my favorite things ever it was incredible uh, to be part of that kind of collaboration. Uh, the collaboration with Brenda and Steven, uh, even though I've had collaborators I adore, that was a real special one. Because you have to work on getting along as much as you have to work on the songs. And everyone has, to has told us that writers of musicals never talk to each other again unless they get together to write another musical. It is such an intense process. Um, and you're collaborating by the end. Forget about the producers and the directors. It's the wig guy. It's the electricians. It's, you know, we need four more seconds to get the wig changed. So, you, you know, you have to adjust it. So it was really important that the three of us learned how to seriously get along with each other. Um, you know, so we wouldn't rip each other apart. So that's an incredible collaboration. Um, I the whole book is just amazing. I, great. I really, really am impressed by that and, and love you talking about it. Do you have a favorite song from, from that? Um, probably one of the ones that wasn't accepted. Be, and they, this does not go according to what's the best song. This is going to what the director thinks fits the uh, scene. Mm. So there's one song that is currently always has been in there that the three of us were just miserable about. And it had replaced two others that we adored. Mm. Um, but, it, you know, it's a director's medium. Um, when I go to see the show, and I'm actually going, it's opening in L.A. again in, on my birthday, actually, in a couple of weeks. Um, I, I, I'm really proud of, of what we did. I don't know if I have a favorite song, though. Uh, the biggest song from it is the big ballad, which is the one that was the hardest to write, I'm Here. Um, so I'm very proud of that. Um, that really depends on who sings it. It's a really hard song to sing. So I have seen it where I have been thrilled and I've seen it where I wanted to put my head between the seat and just smash it together. <laughs> uh, yeah, because it's, it's rangy, it's intense, it goes through a whole lot of movements and, you know. It's beautiful. Too. Yeah. yeah. But we, you know, we had an incredible thing happen to us. Um, when the show first came out in 2005, ran on Broadway from 2005 through part of 2008, uh, went on tour for all the years, you know, in between. And then uh, a really famous theater director, John Doyle, who is known for totally stripping shows out, like reconceiving them. He did the version of Sweeney Todd, uh, won a Tony, and with the actors playing their own instruments, which was incredible. Um, he always loved the color purple. And we were not popular originally in the theater 
community. It was thought of as a black show. Black shows at that time attracted an average of 3% of the audience, other than when uh, Puffy at the time appeared in Raisin in the Sun, it went to 20. Our black audiences were 90. Uh, but you did not feel welcomed by the theater community. The three of us were Los Angeles pop writers. And then you throw Oprah Winfrey into the mix, uh, which is as, as exciting as that was, and it was definitely exciting, um, made the traditional theater people even more of an attitude of, you think you're going to come in here and tell us how to do a show? So we had a lot of uh, resistance. Then this uh, director, John Doyle, in 2013, does a production of The Color Purple at a uh, 199-seat theater in London. Uh, Brenda and I uh, flew over for it. A couple other people did. And it was like, oh, my God, this is the show we wrote Everything was stripped out. Went from 161, I can't remember if there were 161 wig changes or costume changes. It must have been costume changes. And a trillion, you know, wig changes. Um, to no wig changes, no makeup changes, seven costume changes, which happened in the last 20 minutes of the show. No set. There had been, it was like a full-blown Broadway musical, but we were in this room writing it on like beer bottles and egg beaters and trying to make it as raw and stripped down as possible. So original show, a prop for everything, a set for everything. This, nothing. Um, wooden floor, wooden walls, 19 chairs hanging on the wall that ever, you know, are taken down and rearranged. And that was it. And so we saw that Oprah had been talking to Jennifer Hudson forever about doing a, um, she should do Broadway next. And the lead, the whole cast in London was unbelievable. The lead was mind blowing. So it's like, if we can get Cynthia Erivo, and uh, we can get Jennifer Hudson, because by this point, you can't open on Broadway unless you have a star. Um, we're going to do it. So it came back to Broadway with Cynthia, um, with Jennifer Hudson as Suge Avery. As, you know, Cynthia was Seely. And Danielle Brooks from Orange is the New Black was Sophia. An unbelievable cast stripped down to the bone and the show exploded. All of a sudden it was discovered by everyone who basically just wrote it off. Not the least of which was the New York Times. And um, the one thing I left out is that when the London performance happened, unbeknownst to us, the reviewer from the New York Times, Ben Brantley, that's, you know, at the top of the chain, um, he came to London to see it. It's a good thing we didn't know because we would have attacked him. <laughs> he gave us such a lukewarm review the first time around and referred to the music of a black show, Cajun-style Kentucky Fried Chicken. This was in the original New York Times review. I was immediately warned by the producers, just keep your mouth shut, because I was composing, you know, <laughs> just... 
the leather. We pr prohibit you. We prohibit you from doing this. Um, so we didn't know he was there, and he was obviously there when we were there because we were pretty much there for the whole run. And um, I, uh, the night we opened, I got back to my hotel room at like two in the morning, and. Brenda is like calling me on my cell phone and going, you're not going to believe this. Go down to the lobby, get a copy of the New York Times. And on the front of the New York Times, there was a little retraction. And then it sent you to the calendar page where there was a page and a half review of this London production. And Brantley said, I have never done this before in my career, but I rescind my original review and then called it... Uh, this isn't exact, but it was on the order of um, a second date made in heaven of mythic proportion, you know. And with that, Oprah was on the floor to Jennifer. And it took us um, a couple years to really make all the arrangements. But then it came opened in uh, December of 2015. Already, even a couple weeks before, had gotten on the New York Times best list of the 10 best musicals of the year and then got an outrageous review not just in the times but everywhere and my favorite part of the whole thing was the fact that me brenda and stephen and marcia norman who was all our book writer pulitzer prize winner um that we got to experience that because you think you're writing something great then even though it's a hit you're not really getting the reviews. And the three of us, the three songwriters, were always hung out to dry. And we didn't understand it because we thought we wrote like great music. Um, and all of a sudden we're getting reviews like, oh my God, this is magic. So to be able to go through that with your collaborators when you never thought you'd get a second chance, that was mind blowing. Um, that's probably my favorite part of it. And then also to have a show that you used to tell people you wrote and they would go, oh, that's great. And every now and then someone would go, I saw it. I loved it. Whereas now it's like, oh my God, you wrote the color purple. So, uh, of course, with everything starting with Alice Walker, because that is her story. You have to figure out what works and what doesn't work for the medium you're in. So the show is a thousand percent different than the movie. The movie was actually a zillion percent different than the book. Different, same characters, same kind of story, but different things happen. Yeah. And we, Alice Walker, took so much heat for um, being anti-male and all this stuff because in the movie, the men pretty much remained weak buffoons, angry, uh, a lot of stereotypes. In the book, in the novel, uh, Mister, who is the abusive, main abusive guy in there, turns around so much he actually asks Celia to marry him for real this time. And we felt that the power of someone finding themselves and then influencing everyone around them, even their abuser, to change, that's that's the story we need to be telling, that we're going to honor the novel. So, um, uh, but still, you have to change things around because you have devices in books like 
long internal passages. Well, you can't see that on a stage. In movies, you've got close-ups and montages and things like that. Well, on stage, you don't know where anyone is looking and you just have to use different devices. But I think all three of us would agree, certainly in my case, it made me such a better songwriter. I can't even believe I wrote songs before it. All the rules that you think are so stupid, like why do there have to be exact rhymes? I mean, exact. Pop songwriting, as long as it's got kind of the same vowel in it, you can go there. <laughs> so there were so many times we would be stuck for days. Like we had to rhyme the word thimble. <laughs> and, okay, there are certain words that match nimble, but really, do you speak that way? Do you use, I'm so nimble, you know? <laughs> and that took us three days, and we are bitching all the way through. But we finally got it to go with uh, resemble. And it, we just couldn't believe it. And I will never again do a song that just has a close rhyme. Mm. To me now, it seems like lazy, sloppy songwriting. Um, and I learned how to be a way better collaborator. I, I was always someone who thought collaboration is as much of a skill as writing music or writing lyrics. And so many people don't understand that. It becomes it's got to be my line in there or you know when in fact you look for what you don't have that the other person have has and it became a relief that um you would spot everyone's strength and if you didn't know what to do at that time but the the thing that needed to be solved was something that you were confident they knew it was a pleasure just to sit back and say, you know, give it to me. So, uh, you know, Brenda's strength was um, she voices chords unlike anyone I have ever heard. She writes the most gorgeous uh, chords. My, we were all good lyricists, so that was great because that doesn't usually happen. My strength, melodies. And she puts her hands down. It's like Lamont. Well, with him, I scream, Lamont Dozier. Brenda, it's like by the time she's at the second chord, I've already got the melody. And Stephen's uh, strength was uh, rhythmically. And it drove me crazy at first because he was like on the grid. And I am like, I like to be behind the beat. I like to just kind of flow. So we would have a lot of arguments about that. But ultimately, when I gave into it, I thought, oh my God, I've really learned to write like rhythmically a whole different way. So I thought he was so good, it changed me. And I would, all three of us feel that we have influenced each other, you know, a lot. So that, that was, you know, in the end, a great story, but five years of trauma creating it. And then I went right into another five year thing that was the most trauma of all but the most satisfying of all and that was that i self i always self-fund i'm i'm a i'm an outsider outside of clive who was my boss at 21 and i didn't do music with him i didn't even find out till his 
documentary came out last year because I always thought, well, he's never done any of my songs, even though we remain friends. And then when I saw the documentary, the one song that got played all the way through was September. And it never dawned on me, because Earth, Wind & Fire had their own label, that it was still under the umbrella of Clyde. So, um, uh, but anyway, so I self-fund. I don't like the pressure of, I don't know record company presidents. I don't know publishers anymore. I don't, I am happier just kind of being in my own little world on the outside. Um, so I wanted to write a song about Detroit because it was being so dissed by everyone. It was looked at as the, the toilet of the earth. And um, really from sometime in the 70s all the way through, that would, would have been 2011 when I started. And I didn't set out thinking I wanted to write a song. I set out thinking I need to do something for the city, but I'm a self-finance artist, so it can't be in the way of money. I don't have a lot of connections there other than some high school friends. And um, so I thought, what are the two things I do best? Write music, write songs, uh, throw parties. So I thought, I'm going to write a song for the city, and I'm going to take it back, and I'm going to throw parties all over the city, sing-along parties. And I'm just going to stack everything on top of the demo. If you want to play on it, if you want to sing on it. Um, and we're Detroiters. We have to defend this city. So I thought it would take a year. Five years later, and the more successful it got, the deeper in the hole. I was going. And outside of a partner here or there, I had a collaborator, um, Andre Alexander, who I adore, probably my favorite collaborator now, um, uh, to write the song with me, co-produce it with me, go around to all the sing-alongs with me and teach everyone the song on the spot. And I had one main uh, person that I animated, um, with, um, who I just found out of the blue, Sarkis, unbelievable. But this was a handmade project. More people than have ever been on a record before in history. 5,000 lead singers, including all the Motown people, all the, you know, but it went from, you know, plumbers, janitors, nurses, through famous people. And um, took us two and a half years to record, to get and film, and then another two to edit. It took us over a year before we could hear all the voices in one Pro Tools session. Wow. This was daily. This was not, I'll do it when I have time. So, um, you know, to mix everything down so, ah, finally we can hear everything. And that's horrible because you got to make decisions as you go. Um, and then at the same time, so running from here to over there where I would sit and edit and animate. And I thought it was going to kill me. Like toward the end, it was like, oh my God, you're so broke. And who's ever going to hear this anyway? And I needed to throw a party to present it. And that was as big a deal, as, if not more, than what the music took and the editing and animation took. 
But we finally, just a year ago now, um, the DIA, Detroit Institute of Arts, it's the fifth largest museum in the world, gave me half of the entire um, bottom floor, you know, ground floor of the museum. Uh, and so it was like over a city block long of a party that I also had to make props for, had to... Uh, DJ had, you know, everything, contests, all the stuff that my parties usually have. And it gave me the whole thing, gave me the greatest gift ever, which was to reattach to this city that I adored to pick a whole lot of people's spirits up. Mm. Certainly, and this got written a lot about in Detroit, they had not seen an event like this that brought together different ethnicities, different races, different ages, everything that I wanted this to be about. And just gave me so many friends in Detroit that going home now, and it feels like it's the Beatles when I'm there, because the city, so few people, which is shocking to me, come back, let alone come back and do, you know, something. Uh, and it got me into Motown. So I felt like the whole thing, it just became this full circle uh, thing that both the color purple had a chance to really see that bloom and the Detroit thing that it connected me to my childhood, to everyone that's happening there now, um, to everything that's happening there now. And it's, it's exploding as a city now. It's like one of the most vibrant places that you could possibly go. And music has never left. Music has been the one thing that held that city together all the way through. So we are listening to Allie Willis on the Music History Project. She was just talking about her work on The Color Purple. To finish off the interview, she's going to talk a little bit about the song September and how it's become such an amazing event every September. Basically a holiday now. Yes, <laughs> with parties all around the world. Yep. You know what I love about her context of this song was when they sat down to write it, it the whole desire was a party song you know let's have something fun and it doesn't have to be about love and romance and love lost and all of that let's just have you know celebration was big at the time and you know those kind of party fun songs and uh they hit the mark as far as i'm concerned i mean all these years later it's still a really very fun song to listen to. I really, you know, I groove to it and I can't wait for Michelle to give us a little of it right now. Oh, you know what? I'm, <laughs> I don't want to show up Earth, Wind and Fire, so I'm just going to go ahead and uh, take a hard pass. <laughs> All right. Here's the last segment with Allie Willis from her 2018 NAM oral history interview. September 21st. First of all, at the time, the date had no special significance other than it sang better than any other, other of the dates in September. Because we went through, you know, do you remember the first day of the second day? You know, we went all the way through. Um, Maurice felt very strongly that the 21st was um, just felt the most in the pocket. Um I found out about two months ago, that song came out in 1978, we are now in 2018, I found out from Maurice's wife that that was the day their son was supposed to be born. So 
that was the day their son was supposed to be born. Uh, so it actually had great significance, but I never knew it. Um, always in September, first of all, one of the only two singles that was ever released off my Child Star album was called What Kind of Shoes Does September Wear? That she ran away so fast, blah, blah, blah. So September has always had great relevance uh, to me. So September 1st, since 1974, which is when Child Star came out, I have had friends leave me messages on my phone singing, what kind of shoes does September wear? So then in 1978, at the end of the year when September came out, starting in 1979, I still get, what kind of shoes does September wear? But I started getting, you know, body, I say, do you remember? So I have been serenaded for decades and decades on the 1st of September. And then starting 1979, on the 21st of September, where they just would sing September, social media comes along, and all of a sudden, starting on the 1st of September, going to September 30th, every day, I am getting, you know, karaoke versions of it and people posting the original version at, like crazy. So the whole month of September feels like a big birthday to me. But as the years went by, the bombardment that started happening on the 21st of September, uh, last two years ago, I decided, okay, now that I love performing again, and my shows I approach as a party host, not um, not like a singer-songwriter. I do all the songs as sing-alongs. You know the songs. Why do I have to keep my voice in shape, you know? I spoke way too much grass for that. So the songs are all done as sing-alongs. I auction off all like crazy stuff from the house. Um, I'm constantly throwing candy out to the audience. I have them show, so sugared up by the time they leave. They're like nuts. So these shows are very funny. So I realized September 21st, I'm always going to perform. So that became a ritual for me. And again, every year, the response, the number of, I love September, I'm going to sing you September, whatever it is, that's increased. This year, I realize I'm going to do an entire September show. So it's every bad version of September I've collected. It's every animal version. You cannot believe the number of birds that sing September, the number of people that dress the dog up and they're dancing to September. It's unbelievable. So I threw an entire September show, which was great. And the whole month I'm getting gifts. I'm getting, you know, everything. But then something this year that I was never aware of was happening, but just broke loose this year. There were September 21st parties all around the world, all around the world, over a thousand that I know of. And then the freakiest thing of all happened. This was only three weeks ago now. After 40 years, September, by Earth, Wind & Fire, leapt back onto the Billboard charts 
and knocked Eminem out of the number one spot on the hip-hop charts. And it was on the hip-hop charts for all of September and number one now about three weeks ago. Ahead of Eminem, Drake, Chance the Rapper, it's like bang, Earth, Wind and Fire. It was unbelievable and also became the most downloaded uh, Spotify song which I think is because all these people were throwing September 21st parties. So I and a whole bunch of other people fully expect that to happen every September now. And out of all of my songs, I don't necessarily think it's the best song. I absolutely think it's the best record and is my sentimental favorite by far. And it has a, a, a life arc unlike anything because it gets bigger every year. So, you know, for that one being the first hit, doesn't get any better. So 21st of September, I also buy every t-shirt of people making money off us that say September 21st, the happiest day is September 21st. So it's like, give me a royalty, but, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy about it. Okay, so how many September parties have you been invited to? I haven't yet been invited to one. No, I, not, none. I mean, it sounds fun. I mean, I just host my own. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's a one-man party. <laughs> she is so fun. What an absolute honor it was to meet her and to capture this interview and share it with you guys today. Thank you so much for listening. So now this concludes the very first uh, podcast with Ashley. Uh, what did you think? It was amazing. And I'm really looking forward to uh, doing a couple more of these with you guys at least. Awesome. <laughs> Perfect. Welcome. And Michelle, Aww. it's not going to get sad because we're going to keep it but peppy. You got to stay peppy. Oh, or might not be but this is your last podcast. Yeah. So long. So long. <laughs> <laughs> Take funny. care. Yeah. Thank you so much for all you've done for us. We really appreciate you and your contributions to not only the podcast, but to the Resource Center at NAM. And good luck with your future chapters. Oh, you know, it's funny as I just made a joke about when people would say, oh, good luck in your future endeavors. <laughs> no, chapters. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks everyone. <laughs> You're welcome. Light. <laughs> All right. Well, it was a pleasure doing this from my very first slightly awkward podcast to my very last also slightly awkward <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.